Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you grateful that we uh, get to assemble together. Uh, we thank you for the family of God. We thank you for this body. We pray for um, wisdom as we go through this lesson. Pray that uh, the things that I say will be uh, strongly accorded to your word and that we might gain some wisdom uh, from what your word has to say to us today, Lord. We pray for uh, the service, that our hearts would bow before your word, that your words would speak through Andrew, and that we might uh, keep our ears open to hear what you have to say. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. All right. Well, we have been going through quite the study uh, on Christ. Um, I have a little bit of reading to do today. And I'm a really bad reader anyway, and I forgot my glasses out of the chaos of getting out the door. Uh, but it's, uh, it's part of being old with little kids, I think. Is that it? No? Maybe it's just my no, irresponsibility. <laughs> I can blame it on my children for a little few more years now. That's why we got young ones. Um, all right, so... Uh, today, uh, last time we talked about Christ as prophet, today we're going to talk about Christ as priest. And this is, uh, is going to seem strange, but we're going to start in Exodus 32. We're going to talk about Moses for a little while, then we'll talk about that relationship to Christ. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Exodus 32. Exodus 32. Um, as you're doing that, uh, some of the things, uh, some of the problem we have with understanding the offices of Christ is that uh, we're not always exactly sure what all this stuff means uh, because we might have kind of a caricature in our head. You know what a caricature is? You go to downtown Greenville, there's always somebody there willing to draw a picture of you and bring out all your worst features, and then you pay them to do that. It's, it's weird. But it's a caricature. It's not really you. It's just the exaggerated features of you. And that's kind of what we think of these things. Um, a prophet, we often think of, they're predicting the future, and that's what a prophet is. What we don't think of is a prophet is someone who has been given a message from God to give to God's people. Um, that widens what we're talking about a little bit when we're talking about prophecy. And when it comes to a priest, oftentimes we're thinking along the lines of, well, a priest is the guy that had to like slaughter bulls and goats and sheep and uh, sometimes pigeons and uh, burn them. I mean, they're just constantly gutting animals and burning them. So, uh, And we kind of understand that a little bit because we know, well, this had something to do with Christ, but we kind of have that idea of priest out there, right? He performed this thing for those people way back a long time ago. I'm not exactly sure what that's all about, other than that blood was supposed to cover their sins for a time. And so... What does that have to do with Christ being a priest? Do we really understand what a priest really is? What, what was all that stuff meaning? 
So hopefully today what we'll do is get a good idea of what a priest is uh, through Moses' work. And then we'll talk about how that applies uh, when we think about Christ as our priest. So if we look at Exodus 32, I got, I got big, uh, big print here, so I'm very excited about that. Okay, Exodus 32, starting in verse 1. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will be before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off their gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is our God, O Israel, uh, who brought... Who brought you from the land of Egypt? Now, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once, for your people, whom you brought up from the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf, and have worshipped it, and have sacrificed to it, and said, This is our God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then, let me alone, that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them, and I will make you a great nation. Then Moses entreated the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people? Whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians why should the Egyptians speak, saying, With evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and, and Israel. Your servants to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the, of the heavens and descendants uh, and all the land which I have spoken, I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord changed his mind about the, ha- the harm which he, had, which he had said he would do to his people. Okay. Well, that is a lot. Uh, so, first of all, uh, Moses is up on the mountain, fellowshipping with God. This is where he was being given the Ten Commandments. 
uh, the commandments that specify how it is you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And while he's up there, the children of Israel say, we want a God before us. What does that mean? Then they already have a God before them. What were they asking for? Something to see. Yeah, they wanted some, something to see. Isn't that interesting? It's not that they were saying we want to serve a different God. They were saying we want a God before us. And then Aaron says, all right, uh, let's make the thing. And they make it. And then he says, so tomorrow we will have a feast for the Lord. This is God's name, Yahweh. So they're intending this image to be a thing that they can see as they try and worship the one true God through this thing they see. So it's not as if they were saying, hey, let's worship something else. They were trying to worship God through some kind of visual image. Let that sink in um, as we think about the ways uh, people have done that in the Christian world. Um, And so uh, they do this thing, and this makes God furious, angry. And uh, the decision is made by the Lord that he will destroy those people and he'll make a new people through Moses. Then what does Moses do? He pleads for the people. He pleads for the people. Um, He has been given um, a path though, right? Didn't God say, this is the new path, all right? This is what's going to happen. I'm going to destroy them and I'll make a nation of you. Um, but then he pleads for them. So what we're going to find out, um, on your sheet there, although the prophet goes from God to the people, mediating God's will, that's will there, the priest goes from the people to God, mediating God's justice. God's justice. This will be interesting because this is uh, what happens seems like the opposite of justice. But we're going to see something else there. But the the role of the priest is the one that goes from the people to God and mediates God's justice that way. Uh, The people's sin offended God and his anger was kindled against them, and this anger, uh, what do you think about this anger? Um, This is the part where when I would talk about this to my uh, students in my philosophy classes, uh, those students who are sure they have figured out the world of morality and decided when God gets angry at a people for disobeying him, they've decided, well, that is just a selfish God who... Uh, acts like a child when he doesn't get his way, and when people don't worship him, he gets upset. And they have decided they know uh, their brains have gotten big enough um, to figure out all the ins and outs of morality, and they've decided God is immoral for doing this. Why does he get mad? Isn't he so powerful? He's so powerful, why would he get angry? I mean, doesn't anger show a weakness? 
What do you think? How would you answer to the all-knowing ones of Philosophy 101 students? <laughs> okay. There's a will going... Um, there's, the will is involved in that? Okay. Okay, yeah, there's going to be a there's going to be something we're going to have to deal with here. Yeah, Didn't he know this was going to happen? He knows if he's yeah. going to be a sovereign God here and we have to realize that then we have to understand that he has this as a as a plan for his will. Yeah. going forward and that it's just not us acting out of anger. Right. God doesn't work like us in that sense. Oh, that's a good point. So that's something we got to bring out. Yeah, we have to remove our human, human yeah. thought of who God is and, and say this does not apply in that application. So isn't it true, because you're bringing out a great point, isn't it true that 99.9% of our anger uh, is kindled and burning mostly because of the surprise of what we're seeing? Uh, and so, like, uh, when my child... Especially Olivia, who doesn't understand what thin ice means. Uh, when you've already done something really bad, you know, one more thing. One more thing. Uh, so you should be just a perfect little girl right now because, uh, you know, you're on that thin ice. She doesn't get that. She's just like, no, I'm going to do this anyway. I don't care. And you're like, Really? Really? And you, you get really upset because you just cannot believe that she would have the audacity to do this. And it's shocking, and that shocking is part of that kindling of our anger, right? So what do you do? How do we understand a God who is not shocked by what he has seen? But I think we're missing something. I think most sure. of the time our anger is out of selfishness. Pride and selfishness. God doesn't have that. His is a righteous anger. And probably... The point where we're most like God is when we have that righteous anger is when we get angry mm-hmm. when someone is hurt or harmed by sin or malice or something like that. And I think we forget, you know, that, that God, all of his commandments, everything he's given us, his anger in all this is because he, he loves us and wants what's best for us. And we do something stupid and sinful and disobeying him. Mm-hmm. To our own harm, it angers him that we want, that, you know, he wants what's best and he gets mad about that. That all we're doing is bringing harm to ourselves. Okay. Um, so yeah. The anger shows he cares. Mm-hmm. Sure. If he didn't care, he'd be like, whatever, I just blow it all off and then we'll move on. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. The anger shows that he truly cares and loves us because he doesn't want us hurting and harming ourselves or one another. And yet we do it anyway. And that's true. Uh, there is a sense of real care with that. So then we have to ask. What is it he is caring about? Um, on your 
on your blank there, it says, The people's sin offended God, and his anger was, and I want you to put in there, uh, well, you can if you want, uh, required. It's required. So when his anger burned against the people, this anger was um, required, not as in God is a slave to the requiring angry, anger, but that anger is there because he is a holy God. To glorify God and enjoy Him. Yeah. Through right. obedience to that law. Yeah. That represents His holy character. And God wasn't good enough for them, so they made something, right, their version of God, acting as if they can still worship Him through that version of the calf. And so there's a, there is a sense of... Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Does that also like, equate to the fact that even though it was God's Son on the cross... Because Jesus took on that sin, he still had to turn his back. God had to forsake his son. Yeah, yes, and so these aren't, and so when I say required and we say had to, what we don't mean is there's these overriding laws that God follows that he's like, oh, I have to do this because of this thing up here that I'm following. But it is a requirement within his very nature. He is a holy God. And this is one thing that we as humans don't quite get because we, have, we are so unholy. What I mean by that is we still want, uh, how do we put it? We still like the stains of the world on us. We still walk around with the stain of the world and the stain we kind of still find attractive. And... God does not find any of the stain of sin attractive. He finds it uh, repulsive. And it fills him with anger. Now, another thing we have to understand about his anger, it's not the kind of anger that we understand where someone has to hold you back because you've lost control. Right? Have you ever seen two people that are getting upset? They start walking towards each other, and there's someone that holds them back. Easy, easy. Because they've lost control, right? They're starting to lose it. Um, This is not what's happening here. This is not Moses holding God back, saying, okay, easy, easy, easy. Come on, let's think about this now. And God's like, okay, what? What? I haven't thought about this. What what, what do you have to say to me? This is not what's... This is not the picture... Uh, that is happening here. There's something else going on. We're going to get there, honest. Um, So the people deserve... uh, So when we ask what the people deserve, we need to look at what the Scripture says here. And always remembering that these are true words. Uh, Moses and... um, Where is it? Uh, Verse 10. God said, uh, now then, let me alone, that my anger may burn against them, and I may destroy them. Let me alone. What does this mean? What is God denying the people by those words? 
a mediator. That's right. So what we have here is the people deserve no mediation. They do not deserve mediation. And therefore, we're lost to the eternal burning of God's wrath. Okay? So what we're... Um, another thing I want us to try and get clear that we don't oversimplify this as God making a... Um, how do I put it? Um, a statement that isn't... He really has no intention. Right? What's bad parenting? Threats that you have no intention of going through with. Right? Now, if you do that again, I'm going to spank. We're going to spank if you do that again. And, of course, I do it again. Now, now listen. I'm serious. If you do this again, this time I'm going to spank. I'm serious. And then they do it again. You're like, okay, now, now look. I am very upset. Right? And uh, <laughs> this is... Uh, Right? This is bad parenting. I hope we all understand that. And we're, maybe we've all been guilty of that a few times where you just really don't feel like spanking. You just want that threat to really work this time, and uh, then it doesn't. And then you're faced with uh, having to follow through. Right? And depending on you know, the level of threat, you know, sometimes we over-threat. We know we really can't go through with it. You're at a restaurant... And uh, he's like, no, I'm going to spank you. Well, you're at a restaurant. How are you going to get that done? Do you re- can you really follow through with that? I mean, you really, I mean, do you have a minivan so you can get your hand out there? And, right? I mean, if you're in a tiny car, it's hard to spank. You get the kid and you're like, the window, everyone can see through the windows. You're like, don't look. You know, the minivans have those nice windows where no one can see in. There's plenty of room for your arms to swing and whatnot. Okay. <laughs> Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's okay. They won't die, according to the Proverbs. So, so, I mean, you have to follow through with this. Are you really willing to do what you're threatening to do? And oftentimes, we're not. We're just hoping the threat works. So is this what God's doing? Is God saying, okay, here's this empty threat that I have no intention of doing, but I'm just going to say this because I'm so upset. Right? Is that what's happening? Now then, let me alone. No mediation for these people. I'm going to let my anger burn against them. And what kind of burning of anger is this? I'm going to destroy them in their sin. No repentance. Right? What happens to them if they are destroyed in their sin without repentance? Yes. They've got to be aware of the flood right. and what that looked like. Moses definitely. Yes. God is saying this. And it is it's shocking to us as people looking at, you know, we're fighting battles as to, you know, people don't even think God exists. That wasn't even on the table with these people. Right? They're not struggling over whether God exists. I mean, we're at a time where we're just like trying to fight that battle. That he's here. Right? They have all that. They've seen it. They're so afraid of it that they're asking Moses to mediate for them. And here they say, no, we want a, we want a calf. So what's happening is it's not as though God is overreacting and these people really do deserve a mediator and these people have not done enough to be destroyed in their sin. 
and allow that, that wrath to be, a, to be upon them for eternity. Right? We're not looking at a God that's overreacted. This isn't Richard Dawkins' God, right? Who uh, deems the Old Testament God and he has this big list of, of words that he will hear again uh, one day. Um, but rather you have a God that's speaking the truth. They do not deserve a mediator. They do deserve to be destroyed without repentance. That's what they deserve. And so what we have to understand here is that the threat has to be as real as the redemption. Do we understand this? One of the most dangerous theologies out there, uh, I think, aside from just straight out heresy, is the idea that God, because God chose us before the foundations of the world, we were never under his wrath. Does that make sense? Because the redemption would then be meaningless. You're not really being redeemed from anything. Because the, the, the threat was never real. The threat has to be real if the redemption is going to be real. No real threat, no real redemption. So the wrath of God really has to be kindled against you. And there really has to be a future in which you are destroyed without repentance. And someone has to step in. That all has to be real. Now we work within time and space, and so we're all thinking, well, you know, how does all this work? Um, because our minds are limited to time and space, this becomes a mystery, but it's certainly not a mystery to our God. He does not need time and space in order to think. We do, because we're small. So, it needs to be clear... God, when God says to Moses, I'm going to destroy these people and I'll make you a great nation. It's important to know that God was not tempting Moses with some kind of sinful future. Is this what you want, Moses? Right? That would be the serpent in the garden. Don't you want, Moses? Moses, is this some, don't you want to be the one whom I make all, you know, the rest of the nations with you? Wouldn't that be great? Isn't, doesn't the fruit look good for eating? I mean, do you understand what I'm saying? This, wasn't, this is not what God is doing. God was not tempting Moses, nor was God's anger mastering God's mind. Those are two aspects we have to get in our head. God was not tempting Moses, nor was God's anger mastering God's mind, so that God's mind needed to be cleared by Moses. God was so overwhelmed with anger, Moses had to say, Oh no, listen to some, I got something. Now listen here, God. Now, uh, you remember, you have promised these promises. And uh, if, you, um, if you renege on them, the, the uh, Egyptians are going to say bad things about you. And then God's like, ah, yeah, yeah, you know what, you know what, I'm, I'm cooled down now. And now I'm thinking clearly, thank you, Moses, for that. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to destroy them. Sounds good. I mean, and you would think this is the kind of God a lot of people serve, right? Uh, you would think this is, I mean, if this was the God we're serving that loses his mind and some human has to say, hey God, I have some, 
some good solid reason for you. Could you please uh, just listen to me for a moment? And then God settles down. I mean, that's insane. Uh, but we're going to find there's a reason for this. Um, do anyone have anything else to add? Did I miss any hands? Well, I was going to say that neither was he going against his own covenant. That promise that he made to uh, Isaac and Abraham. Right. Because he could still go through Moses. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So he was, you know, if somebody were to ever argue, well, he, he, he was breaking his covenant then. Mm-hmm. That's right. He was fulfilling his covenant through his threat. That's right. That's right. And it could even be argued that the people of Israel were already in such breach of their covenant um, that it really lends over to God any freedom he wanted anyway. But you're right, through Moses, there's still, there's still connection back to the fathers, right? Um, so, okay. The duties of the priest. What do we see Moses doing? We see Moses appeasing the wrath of God for the sake of the people. He entreats God. There has to be some kind of appeasing going on. When we see wrath kindled and there has to be wrath poured out, when we, when we think of a human being acting that way, of course it looks horrible. Because a human being doesn't have the right to act this way. The small-mindedness of humans keep making God a human. And so when God does something, when God's wrath is kindled, and he says, no, my wrath will be poured out on someone, who will it be? It will be on these sacrifices until I give my own son to pour my wrath down on him. They think, well, if a human did that, yeah, that'd be crazy. So what do you think of God, though? Why is God doing it? Because God's not a weak human. God is the author of reality and tells us what it is that is right from his own nature. His justice is going to be satisfied. It is not petty. It is not small. It is the reality of justice. That thing within all of us that bothers us when there is no justice That thing inside of us, when we see an innocent person being hurt, that thing inside of us that surges and is filled with anger when we see some some kind of injustice happening in this world, is part of that image-bearing of the God who is just. And so this is part of his justice. And this, the duty of the priest, is to come before him and appease his wrath. And to stand between God and the people. To stand between God and the people. He comes from the people to God, stands between them, and pleads on their behalf. Which tells us something about how God arranged this whole event. The arguments of Moses... Uh, The arguments Moses gives are not to instruct God. God had not forgotten any of this. But they were presented to demonstrate Moses' faith 
in those promises that God has made. Moses was demonstrating that he is uh, faithful. So the priest, with the priest, it demands faithfulness. Faithfulness to, the, to God's word. This was your word, God, and I am remaining loyal to it. I'm not instructing you, I am demonstrating my faithfulness as a priest before those people. God's threat is absolutely real, and Moses is God's covenantal provision. Here is the love of God, that as his wrath is kindled, he has already arranged a covenantal provision. What was Moses doing there? Why was it taking so long? What was going on? He has been in the mountain for so long. What was Moses doing there? God had provided, even before the people sinned, God had provided a covenantal um, work that Moses would be doing on their behalf. Does that sound familiar to you? Before the foundation of the world, there was already a covenantal provision for the people who would sin against God. Christ as priest is that provision. That as God's wrath is kindled, even before the kindling of his wrath, provision has been made for his people. Um, Christ as priest. Christ appeased the Father with his own person for his people. So Moses gave us a little snapshot of what, was, of what it means to be a priest. Christ actually does it. Even the priests of the Old Testament were giving us a snapshot of what it means to be a priest. But Christ is the one that does it. Christ did not then go find something to sacrifice. Christ becomes the sacrifice as the priest. He is the one who offers a sacrifice, and that sacrifice is himself. He gives up the ghost. Right? He gives himself over to the soldiers. He is the lamb that is before his shears doesn't speak because he's offering himself. And he's offering himself to save a real threat for his people. And this is something that I think we lose in our Reformed world. Uh, we find great comfort in God's uh, predestining his people. And it is wonderful, and it is a great comfort. But somewhere in there, I think we lose contact with the fact that the threat of your eternal damnation was real. That the wrath of God was kindled against you personally. You can put your name there. God was angry with you. And was apt to destroy you without repentance, and without a mediator. And it would have been just. He would have gotten glory out of it. 
but God, right, who is rich in mercy, with his great love with which he loved us, saved us, right? And he did this through the priestly work of Christ. The wrath is real, just as real as that redemption that he already provided before the wrath was there. Christ stands between the Father and us, 1 Timothy 2.5, as not, um, not as a shield, but as a perfect mirror of the Father. There's a sense in which there is a shielding going on in, God, in Christ's mediation, but that shielding wasn't just, I want to protect you from the wrath of the Father, but rather to show you the Father's love for you. And that's why I am here. If you want to know what the Father looks like and what his love looks like, look at me, Christ says. I'm showing you the Father, not blocking you from him. I'm showing you him. And his love for you is inherent in me. Christ is sacrifice as fully God that makes him worthy to be the sacrifice. As fully man, it makes him apt to be the sacrifice. One of the reasons during the Reformation that everyone was arguing over the natures of Christ was for this very reason. Um, There were some that said, well, this Christ's divinity and his humanity were all mixed together into this one thing, which made us think, well, then, that's, is that really being a human? Is a human have mixed with... Is a human mixed with divinity? And that was a big question, because what God was redeeming, he had to be. <clears throat> he had to be truly a man, and fully a man, as well as truly and fully God. You mix it, and you have a third thing. Um, they call it... Tritium quid or something like that. It's Latin. But the whole point is saying it's a third thing. He'd be redeeming all the people that are fully, are mixed with divinity. But he, instead, he redeemed the people who are fully human like us. Did I see a hand over here? Okay. Um, I'm sorry, I just don't want to, I don't want to be yap when you guys have something to say. I want to hear what you're saying. Um, God's threat is absolutely real or the sacrifice is artificial. If it's not a real threat, then it's not a real sacrifice. God's wrath comes with provision for it is built into the covenant itself. And this is why the idea of covenant is so vital to understanding Scripture. When we understand scripture as one story, and that story is about Christ redeeming his people, um, we start understanding the Bible. When we became Reformed, it it was like this great enlightenment of, oh, that's what the Bible's about. Before, it just seemed like you had the Old Testament, which I don't understand that stuff, it doesn't matter. Then you got the New Testament, it's like, oh, that's great stuff, because Jesus was so good, and we need to be good like Jesus. And that's all it really meant. I didn't know why we had the old 
you know, the Old Testament kind of seemed like an anchor and weird. Uh, the New Testament was supposed to be the good stuff, and, and so that's all I understood. But then, when we became Reformed, we understand the Bible is one full story. Just one story. It's about how Christ saved his people from their sin. And then the whole Bible started to make sense. But if you understand the whole Bible from that story, you have to understand the Bible as a covenant document. If you don't read scripture, understanding covenant at all times, you will get so confused. You will not understand that John 3.16 is the standard for the covenant. And then when you get to John, John 6, it makes sense that the covenant is carried out this way. The standard is, if you believe, right, you're saved. So who are the ones that believe? John 6, the ones that the Father gives to His Son. If you don't understand the Bible in a covenant fashion, you're going to be so confused about all that. Mm. Whosoever means whosoever! And you'll start going, going on those, all, those tyrants. But if you start understanding the Bible as God's covenant work, God's covenant ex- explanation for His story... It becomes alive because you start understanding it. You start seeing that there was provision uh, there even before the fall. Because God the Father covenanted with his son to be a redeemer. For his son to be the redeemer. The priest to his people. The one who stands between us and the Father's wrath. And then takes it on. Because the wrath is real. right? What if God said... This is the last thing I want to say to you to help you understand how real the wrath was against you. It was important that that wrath was poured out on Christ. Why? Because if the wrath wasn't poured out, then the wrath really wasn't important at all. If the wrath wasn't poured out, then there really was no wrath. It was just, oh, okay, well then forget it. That's not wrath. That's not justice. It's as real as the wrath that was poured out on your Christ, the priest, who stood in your place as the sacrifice that you should have done. You should be there in eternity, taking on that wrath forever. And the priest said, wait. He entreated. And he did it for you. That is the priestly work of our Christ when we see it through this uh, example in Exodus, I hope it helps us see that what that work looks like. And that there's priestly work we can do. There's priestly work that, that Andrew does for you. Where he entreats the Lord for your sake. Even at times where we have done wrong. Where it would be good for the Lord to punish you or to do his work of correction on you, and Andrew pleads on your behalf for the people at this church. And he does it all the time. We're going through our week not even thinking about maybe each other or Andrew, and it is his work all week to think about you as a kind of priest for you. It is something to think about as we so we go into the worship, worship service as Andrew prepares to uh, work in his prophet uh, setting to tell us what the Lord has for us to know. Remember that during the week, uh, our pastor has been a priest to us as well. Let's have a word of prayer.
Dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you. We're grateful for the work of your Son. Not just for the work of your Son, but that your will was for the Son to suffer in our place. We um, almost don't even understand it, but we can be thankful for it. Lord, we pray for thankful hearts to you. We pray that your work will be done deep in our hearts as we go into the service, that we might listen to your word and bow ourselves before it. We ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. Amen.